We come this morning to 2 Kings chapter 9 and 10, and we definitely see justice rolling down uh, throughout the nation of Israel. If you remember back to 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah was given three tasks, go anoint Elisha, Hatziel, and Jehu. Uh, we saw him anoint Elisha. Last week we saw Elisha anoint Hatziel. And this week we see uh, Jehu anointed. Now Jehu is a commander uh, in Israel. He's anointed to be king and it sets in motion a coup. Uh, and this is something that God has called for, but it also leaves a, a lot of questions. As we read these chapters, we, we see a very bloody uh, period in Israel's history. In fact, one of the bloodiest periods in Israel's history. So I, I want to look at the whole of the two chapters, but I, obviously it's a long passage to read. So I have some excerpts printed for you in your bulletin. I, I hope that you had a chance to maybe read it ahead of time. If not, go back and read it later this afternoon, and hopefully the Lord will give us uh, a little insight into it. Then Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Tie up your garments, take the flask of oil in your hand, and go to Ramoth Gilead. When you arrive, look there for Jehu, son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi. Go in and have him rise from among his fellows, lead him to an inner chamber. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door, flee, and do not linger. And so the son of the prophet does this. He reminds Jehu that he is to execute justice on the house of um, on the house of Ahab. Jehu uh, is uh, the people come around him. They decide to travel the 44 miles from Ramoth Gilead to Jezreel. At that point, uh, they see him from the walls, and the kings make ready to go out and meet Jehu. So thus Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now Joram, which is the same as Jehoram, who is the king that we've been dealing with, Ahab's son, uh, with all of Israel, had been on guard at Ramoth Gilead against Hatziel, king of Syria. And Joram said, Make ready. And they made ready his chariot. Then Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, set out each in his chariot and went to meet Jehu, and they met him at the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. And when Joram saw Jehu, he said, Is it peace, Jehu? And Jehu answered, What peace can there be so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? Then Joram reigned about and fled, saying to Ahaziah, Treachery, O Ahaziah. And Jehu drew his bow with his full strength, and shot Joram between the shoulders so that the arrow pierced his heart and he sank into his chariot. Jehu said to Bidkar his aide, take him up, throw him on the plot of ground belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. For remember, when you and I rode beside, or rode side by side behind Ahab his father, uh, and how the Lord made this pronouncement against him, as surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. Now therefore take him up and throw him on the plot of ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. 
When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out of the window. And as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it peace, you Zimri, murderer of your master? Zimri is a, another servant that killed his king in order to become king. So that's what she is referring to there. Jehu lifted his face to the window and said, Who is, my, who is on my side? Who? Two or three of the eunuchs looked out at him, and he said, Throw her down. So they threw her down. Some of her blood splattered on the wall and on the horses, and they trampled on her. Then he went in and, and ate and drank, and he said, See now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she's a king's daughter. But when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palm of her hands. When they came back and told Jehu, he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by the servant Elijah the Tishbite. In the territory of Jezreel, the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say, this is Jezebel. And then at the beginning of chapter 10, uh, we see Jehu execute judgment against the rest of the house of uh, Ahab and Jezebel, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke to Elijah. And then he assembled all the people, and he said to them, Ahab served Baal a little, but Jehu will serve him much. Now therefore call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his worshipers and priests. Let none be missing, for I have a great sacrifice to offer to Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. But Jehu did it with cunning in order to destroy the worshipers of Baal. Jehu ordered, sanctify a solemn assembly for Baal, and they proclaimed it. Jehu sent throughout all of Israel, and all the worshipers of Baal came, so that there was not a man left who did not come. They entered the house of Baal, and the house of Baal was filled from one end to the other. He said to him who was in charge of the wardrobe, Bring out the vestments for the worshippers of Baal. So he brought out the vestments for him. Jehu went into the house of Baal with Jehonadab, son of Rechab, and he said to the worshippers of Baal, Search, and see that there is no servant of the Lord here among you, but only the worshippers of Baal. And then they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now, Jehu had stationed 80 men outside and said, The man who allows any of those who I give into your hands to escape shall forfeit his life. So as soon as he made an end of the offering of the burnt offering, Jehu said to the guard and to the officers, Go in and strike them down. Let not a man escape. So when they put them to the sword, the guard and the officers cast them out and went into the inner room of the house of Baal, and they brought out the pillar that was in the house of Baal, and they burned it. They demolished the pillar of Baal, they demolished the house of Baal, and they made it a latrine to this day. Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. That is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes, and have done according to the house of Ahab, according to all that was in my heart, your son to the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all of his heart. He did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. Thus far, in the word of the Lord, Thanks be to God. 
Father, as we open this word, we, we say we need your help. We need your help to understand what it is that you are communicating to us, to understand the beauty of the gospel that we so long to hear. Um, so, Spirit, we pray that you would be at work in our hearts and in our minds, even this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Headlines can be a bit deceiving, can they not? Uh, you can just go through the, the headlines of, of various news sources and then read the story and sort of scratch your head and you're like, well, it's not really what that story was about. Um, this week, uh, Kirk Cousins, who is the quarterback for the Minnesota Vikings, uh, he's a native West Michigander, graduate of Holland Christian. He's very outspoken about his faith. He was making headlines uh, on ESPN because he had made a statement with regards to the coronavirus that if I die, I die. And the way that the, the headline was portrayed, the way that the story even framed it was that he was being quite callous with regards to concern about the coronavirus and all of these different things. But if you dig a little bit closer and you read the context of, of what uh, Kirk was saying, it's very different. He says, I have peace. I don't believe that I control the outcome of my life. There are many things out of my control. Obviously, my faith is at the foundation of my life. I trust the Lord to handle things. If something happens, I trust him to have a plan, a purpose, to use even pain, setback, adversity, to use those things to help grow me and teach me more about him. When you read uh, the fuller description of what is said, it brings context to the headline that we sometimes get. Unfortunately, I think a lot of us, you know, us, but also certainly people in the world, deal with sort of a headline version of Christianity. So we come to a passage like 2 Kings 9 and 10, and, and the headlines scream out something like, Angry God allows bloodthirsty tyrant to wipe out those who disagree with him. And, and we, we read that and we're like, yeah, man, what's up with this God? You know, why, why is this so, this is so foreign to who we are and this, this doesn't make any sense. But just like we have to do with the headlines in our news, we have to dig a little bit deeper. We have to understand context. We have to uh, look at not only what the text is saying, but what the subtext is saying, and, and how do we begin to appropriate that. And I hope that today we can do that, because you know I know that for many people, this is a big obstacle to a relationship with God. Like, I, I sort of, you know, I like the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount. I, I like the love your enemies and forgive, but I just don't really understand the God of the Old Testament. And if we see some continuity there, how can I, I love the one and then also love the other? But what I hope to see, or I hope to show you, is that there is ultimate continuity between the God of the Old Testament and the Christ that we meet in the New Testament. So let's dive in and, and see what we can see. And I want to start with the heart of God. Did you pick up on that in 2 Kings 10 verse 30, that God actually tells us that this narrative in Israel's history is actually the working out of 
his heart. What he says in, in verse 30 is this. He says, The Lord said to Jehu, Because you've done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons to the fourth generation shall sit on my or sit on the throne of Israel. What is he referring to here? Well, I, I think what he's referring to here is justice. Uh, justice in its whole biblical sense. That is both retributive and distributive. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. But let me give you some context. Remember, uh, the house of Omri, who is Ahab's father, back in 1 Kings chapter 16, when we first started these stories of Elijah, we are told that Omri, Ahab, and his son have done more wickedness in Israel than any other king. So we're dealing with a hard-hearted, wicked dynasty that has been wreaking havoc on Israel for decades now. Uh, you remember that uh, Jezebel, uh, she killed the prophets uh, early on in, in 2 Kings chapter 9. God says that the blood of the prophets are crying out to me, uh, the blood that Jezebel spilled. You remember Ahab, uh, in addition to setting up the Baals and all the idol worship, uh, Bahab, or Ahab sort of petulantly took Naboth's land through uh, Jezebel. This is in 1 Kings chapter 21. This is probably 20, 30 years earlier. Uh, Naboth, Naboth was a God-fearing Israelite who happened to have land right next to Jezreel in the palace that Ahab had there. And uh, Ahab wanted it, so he took it. Uh, he had uh, Naboth and his sons uh, unjustly tried and then killed. And all of these things God has seen. A and God now has appointed Jehu to come and to be the executor of justice. Now let's try to understand what justice is. There's a couple of different terms. There's a Hebrew term, mishpat, if you remember back to our study of Amos uh, a couple of years ago, we talked about mishpat, and we talked about how oftentimes in the West we think about justice, we think about its retributive sense. Like somebody steals from you, you want them to be brought to justice, you want them to be punished, you want some sort of restitution. That's what we think about in terms of justice. But mishpat also has a distributive sense where there's generosity and mercy and uh, there's a righteousness that is in the land. Both of these are, are what we think of in terms of justice. In, in Greek, the New Testament, um, the Greek word is dikaiosine, which is both the idea of righteousness, sort of that distributive sense, and also justice more in the retributive sense. And what we see here in this passage is God's heart for both of these things. Retributively, we see that in his execution of Naboth's, uh, of, of justice on behalf of Naboth, and specifically with regards to Ahab's house. Notice that this takes place outside of Jezreel on the very plot of land that Ahab took from uh, Naboth. Here it is that Jehoram, his son, uh, is executed 
as a result of that justice. You see that in verse 26. God says through Jehu, as surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, I will repay you on this plot of ground. And we learn a couple of things here about the heart of God with regards to injustices in the world. First of all, that, that God remembers the injustice and that time doesn't uh, dissipate the effect of the injustice. Again, this is decades after uh, Naboth lost his vineyard. But God says there, there is still justice to be paid. And in this case, the sins of the fathers are exacted from the, the children. You know, God has that kind of memory. I know we were wrestling with this as a country. Like, how do we think about, you know, justice that, uh, for things that have happened long ago? Uh, and, and how are, are, is that carried out? You know, should that be carried out? Do we just pass on those things? I know after the Holocaust, <coughs> certainly this was something that the Jewish nation wrestled with. You know, do we exact justice from the Germans and, and from those who executed this final solution, even if it's not the actual people that executed the final solution? What, what does that sort of justice look like? But one of the things that we can say about God is that God remembers and that God continues to act on behalf of the cause of justice for his people. The other thing that I love about this is that God is so personal. Uh, sometimes we think about the cause of justice uh, and God certainly sees it that way. I mean, God has a cause of justice in this world but he also remembers the specific people. He remembers Naboth. He remembers his sons. You know, even though we never get their names, even though we never get the prophets' names, their blood cries out to God. God is so personal in the way that he looks at his people. And that's such a tremendous encouragement. I, I think about those who have had injustice perpetrated against them. And some of that is, is you. I mean, we think about big things. We think about Pol Pot and Cambodia with the killing fields. We think about the Holocaust. We think about slavery in our country. We think about lots of different things. But there are also things that have happened in bedrooms of homes. There are also things that have happened in, in the business uh, annals of our country. There are all sorts of injustices that have taken place over the years. But what we see here is that God knows, he sees in a very real way. You know, Ray, or, uh, Hagar, who had an injustice perpetrated against her back in Genesis when um, Abraham and Sarah sent her out, uh, God saw her. He came to her in the desert place and she said, I see, you know, you are truly the God who sees me. And when we see uh, God coming and executing justice on behalf of Naboth and his sons and these prophets, we remember that he is a God who sees. And, and he just brings it all together right here on this plot of ground. There is a, a specificity to his justice here. 
that I think is really, really encouraging. I don't know how that strikes you this morning, but I, I think that there is a tremendous truth here in that we have a God of justice. My, I would dare say that most of us have uh, been perpetrated against at some point. Some of it very deeply, very deeply personal, very deeply uh, damaging. Uh, others of us, maybe more lightly, or we don't see it so clearly. But to know that we have a God of justice is so, so important to our being able to go forward. But that's the retributive justice. But there's also this distributive justice. Because whenever we talk about justice from a truly biblical sense, and I, I shared with you an article that Tim Keller recently wrote in the Friday letter. It's also referenced in the questions for discussion. I, I would definitely encourage you to that because it really helps us put what biblical justice is against sort of so many permutations of justice that we see in our modern society. But biblical justice is not only retributive, but it's also distributive. Look at what Jehu says in verse 22. When Joram comes out, he says, Is it peace, Jehu? Is it shalom? That's the Hebrew word for peace. And that's actually in this text ten times. Ten times is the word shalom. And one of the things that God is wanting us to see is that we are never going to truly live in a just society when we do not live by the way that God has laid it out. That is part of the deal. Uh, and what Jehu says is really true. He says, how can there be shalom? How can there be peace so long as the whorings and sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? You know, so here we're reminded that, that Jezebel has come in and not only is she doing bad things to people, but she is encouraging, and Ahab is encouraging, and Jehoram is encouraging people to not walk in the way of the Lord. The way that the Lord has organized the world, sort of the arc of justice, as Martin Luther King Jr. called it, that he has placed within our world, that is where peace is. And if we refuse to live by the, the whole law of God, we're just not going to have peace. There's going to be no shalom. There's going to be no justice. Uh, and, and this is the problem that Israel has to remember over and over and over again. So remember, this, these stories are coming to a people in captivity. So they want to know, is God just? Will he remember the injustices that are done to us? The answer to that is yes. But they also have to remember that part of the reason why they're in captivity is that they refuse to walk with the Lord. They refuse to humble their hearts and, and to walk with him in the way that he called them. Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 7, beginning around verse 8. <coughs> The prophet says to a people in exile, he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true justice, show kindness, have mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, the poor. Let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. Do you, do you, hear, what, do you hear what the prophet is saying? 
He's saying if you really want to know justice, you've got to know the whole heart of God. And the whole heart of God is revealed in his word. I mean, when you read the law in Leviticus and you read the law in Deuteronomy, that's the heart of God on display to you. It's the heart of God where he says, welcome the stranger and the sojourner that are in your midst. You know, do kind. Some people call this the quartet of the broken, uh, the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, the poor. Uh, be kind to them. And if you, if you don't do that, you are not being distributors of the kind of justice that God wants in this world. And you're not going to know peace. You're not going to know shalom. So again, there's so much encouragement here when we meet this God. We see a God who cares about justice, both in its retributive and its distributive sense. And that gives us so much impetus for life. I mean, against these sort of crazy headlines that we meet this capricious God, what we actually meet is a very benevolent, kind, just God. Uh, who wants us to live in a way that is really going to bring us shalom. Arthur Miller, who was an American Jewish playwright, uh, is famous for things like The Crucible, Death of a Salesman. He also wrote this play called After the Fall, which uh, some of the critics called embarrassingly autobiographical. Uh, Miller uh, was married to Marilyn Monroe. Some of you may know that. Uh, they were married for about five years. She really found a lot of solace there. She actually uh, committed suicide about 18 months after they were divorced. Uh, the play kind of chronicles some of that. And in it, Quentin, who is the main character there, who it is believed really voices a lot of Miller's thoughts, uh, has this inner dialogue. And one of the things that he says is, you know, the more that I think, for many years, I, I looked at life like a case law, like a series of proofs. And I'm always trying to prove myself. Uh, but underlying it, uh, I, I wanted to know that I was moving on an upward path towards some elevation where God knows that I would be justified or perhaps even condemned but that there would actually be a verdict. This is, this is Miller. This is Miller who grew up with the Holocaust. This is Miller who uh, lost his ex-wife by suicide. He's asking all of these things and he wants a verdict. But then he says, I think that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. There was no judge in sight. And all that remained was this endless argument with, what, with oneself, this pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench, which of course is another way of saying all that was left was despair. You know, it's such an interesting thing, and I think it points out our, our human condition. One of the great mercies of this chapter here in 2 Kings uh, 9 and 10 is that we're reminded that the bench is not empty, that God is there. He is the judge, and when we look up at, to him, we recognize that he is ready to speak to us. We recognize that there is truth in the universe. If that were not the case, 
And I posit for you, if that's not the case, what do we actually have? We, there's nothing. There's despair. Uh, there is no hope. But we do see, and this is secondly, we do see that we really need God to work because we, in and of ourselves, uh, fall short. And we see this in the person of Jehu so clearly. Uh, Jehu is God's appointed, but like Hatziel the Syrian, who never bowed his knee to Yahweh at all, uh, Jehu ends up uh, with a very bad epitaph. Uh, he ends up being said that uh, he did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nebat. She made Israel to sin, that is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and Dan. He was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all of his heart. And it's really interesting. God said to about Jehu, you did all that was in my heart uh, with regards to justice, but Jehu did not follow God with all of his heart. And so in the end, the, the, what stood against him was an unfaithful king. He became another in a line of unfaithful kings uh, that Israel, uh, the northern kingdom, was forced to bear. A couple of observations on this for you, a little bit shorter than the first point. First observation is this. You know, God regularly strikes straight blows with crooked sticks. And hallelujah, he does, because all of us, all of us are, are crooked sticks when it comes right down to it. There is none of us that, you know, truly does justice, loves mercy, and walks humbly with our God. We constantly have to confess these things. Uh, but, but God has not stopped. I mean, he still does all of his holy will. He still works out his plan even with imperfect, cracked vessels like Jehu, like Hatziel, uh, like Elijah, uh, for that matter. Elijah, who was depressed. Elijah, who ran away from God, like Jonah, like, uh, you know, every saint, David, Noah, all of these, they all were cracked vessels. Uh, but God strikes straight blows with crooked sticks. I take a lot of comfort in that uh, right now uh, from my own life, uh, my life you know, in, in the lives of my kids. Uh, I take a lot of comfort in it. Uh, politics, as we go forward, it would be so easy to despair <coughs> over our land when we see the choice of leadership that, that we have. Uh, but the point is our hope is not in those people. The point is our hope is in God who overrules uh, the hearts of, of men and women and he strikes straight blows with crooked sticks. Now that doesn't let anybody off the hook uh, for, for wickedness or allow them to play the fool or anything. We see Jehu is ultimately not let off the hook. But the point is we trust God uh, that even the wrath of men shall praise him, as the psalmist says. Uh, that men can rage and, 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 and push against the, the laws that he has put in this land or in this world, in the universe, but God's will will still be done. Secondly, 
The other thing that we see here, and I think this is so, so important, is that when we, we seek to follow God, but we don't follow his ways, we are only going to make a disaster of things. And we see that with Jehu. Jehu hears from God, I've anointed you. But then Jehu starts out with a power grab. He starts off with a bloodthirsty way of, of executing the, the previous regime. He uses deceit. He's somewhat crass in that he turns the house of Baal into a latrine. Uh, he tramples over Jezebel. I mean, it, it is a really bloody sort of execution of the word that God has brought on top of him. And what we know from the way that God works the rest of, of his will is that there's always another way. It doesn't always have to be through this bald sort of exercise of power that we execute God's will. This is actually one of the points that Tolkien is making in, his, uh, in the Lord of the Rings. You know, here we have the, the one ring, the ring of, of power. And, and Sauron, who is the evil power, created this. And... Uh, you know, there's this temptation when it falls into the hands of, of the good guys. They say, well, let's take the ring and let's use the power to overthrow Sauron. And, and Boromir, you know, the man of might and strength and valor, he, he falls prey to this temptation. But it's interesting, Galadriel and, and Elrond and Gandalf, the, the wise ones, they say no. We can't do this because if I were to take this ring of power, there's this great scene by the mirror of Galadriel in Lothlorien where she says, if I were to take this ring of power, I would indeed become powerful and I would become more beautiful, but I would become terrible and all would fear me. Uh, she would essentially become Sauron herself. And you know what's so fascinating about Jehu and Jehoram? In the end, the Bible says the exact same thing about each of them. In 2 Kings uh, chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, we're told about Jehoram that he was a little better than Ahab. He got rid of the Baals, but he didn't get rid of the sins of Jeroboam, his father. He continued to walk in those. He continued to worship the golden calves at Bethel and Dan. You know what we're told about Jehu? He got rid of the Baals, but he didn't get rid of the sins of Jeroboam, his forefather. He continued to worship the idols uh, at Bethel and Dan. And so when we see Jehu, who goes about uh, this uh, toppling of the throne, but through this exercise of power, we recognize that the oppressed became the oppressor. Uh, there, there's just simply a changing of seats, but there's no really changing of hearts. And this is one of the things that we really need to watch in our modern thoughts and conceptions of justice. You know, so often we think that if, if the oppressed could simply be given more power, then that would be the way forward. 
But history tells us that the oppressed, with only power, soon become the oppressors. Uh, there are all sorts of examples through history about that. One of the things that makes me nervous about some of the things that I hear, uh, even in modern sort of talking about justice and how things go, we have to recognize we have to do things in God's way. We have to follow his heart. And that's really the third thing that I want us to see here uh, is that uh, we need to see a king. We need to see a king who accomplishes peace through not shedding the blood of others, but through shedding his own blood. And this is where we see the, this story of the Old Testament that is pointing us to the New Testament. You know, whether you are an Israelite in captivity and you're hearing these stories and you're realizing that your heart is longing for justice, you're realizing that you need yet a king who can really bring about that justice, or whether you are a 21st century American sitting in a parking lot or on a hillside and you're saying, yes, I need this kind of justice where will I find this wholesome, wholesome justice? Uh, we find it in the person of Jesus. One writer puts it this way, talking about our need. As we witness the judgment of Joram and the extermination of his family, we should also remember that we deserve the very same judgment because of our own sins and shortfalls. Were it not for the fact that another king would come and take upon himself the judgment that we deserve, we would be lying neck dead next to Joram, next to Jehu, in the vineyard of Naboth, at the gates of Jezreel. Joram died for his sins and for the sins of his father, but Jesus died for our sins in order that we might know his father. Here's how the justice in the heavenlies work. God made a universe, he placed right and wrong in it, and we, like Jehoram, Jehu, Jezebel, and other people whose names don't begin with J, uh, we, we find ourselves at the judgment seat of God, and, and we realize that we are guilty. But what happened is, God not only sat in the bench, in the judgment seat, but he gets out then and he stands in the dock. He becomes the defendant. And, and the judgment of guilty falls on him rather than on us. The judgment of uh, you, you need to pay for your sins falls upon him instead of on those who will believe in him. And instead of going and exercising power, he exercises weakness. He exercises the weakness to go to the cross, uh, to bear the wrath of God. Instead of shedding the blood of his enemies, he sheds his own blood uh, from his hands, from his side, in the rivulets that uh, go down his face from the crown of thorns. And as his blood is poured out, we recognize that we have peace. We have shalom. 
And that's the difference between the gospel that we stand here this morning and, and we celebrate and, and we hold out and we invite you to and, and the railings of men like Jehoram, like Jehu, all of these who come by power. For it's by weakness through the cross that we see the strength of Christ. It's by weakness through the cross that we see his justice where he has both retributively borne the wrath of God and distributively given the righteousness that brings peace. The apostle says in Ephesians, he himself is our peace. He is our shalom. We have it through Christ on the cross. And so, brothers and sisters, this is the invitation. The invitation is to look up and to recognize that the bench is not empty. Uh, God is there, and he has put an order into the universe, and we will be held accountable to that. But when we look up, we can also recognize that there is hope in that he has come down and stood by us in the dock, and that he will become the defendant in our place in order uh, to take the wrath of God and to be the righteousness of Christ for us. So what's the headline? The headline is, an angry, capricious God uses a bloodthirsty tyrant in order to wipe out people that disagree with him. But the actual truth that we see in this story is something like this. Though there was a very rebellious people, a loving God shed his own blood in order that there might be justice and that there might be peace. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for uh, the good news of it and how it comes to us. We ask that you would continue to impress upon us just the grace that you have given us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would uh, unite our hearts now as we sing of this, uh, the good news that you are not demanding our blood, but that you have shed yours so that we can stand with confidence before you. In Jesus' name, amen.